Listen up, it's the Speakeasy with Annie Madden and Carla Trelaw. Conversations in the margins. A comfortable space for uncomfortable topics. Well, the big red button is pressed, Annie, and we're back again in our various Speakeasy lounges spread across um, Aboriginal land where we're recording in NADOC week. So we should uh, acknowledge that wherever we are, we're on Aboriginal land that has never been ceded and pay respects to elders past and present. Absolutely. How are you, Carla? I'm all right. It's Friday as we're recording, you know, things could be worse. Yeah, nice one. How about you? Yeah, I'm all right. I feel like I was thinking this morning, wow, we've really sort of powered in to the end of the year with our speakeasies. We're making up for lost time. We've done yeah. some back-to-back recordings, so it's it's, yeah. good. it's good. And, in fact, we had to push one guest from 2020 to yeah. 2021, so, you know, woo, Yeah, yeah we're so highly in demand. <laughs> <laughs> but today there's yes. two guests in our studios. Welcome, Christy, and welcome, Myra. Hello. Lovely Hello. to be here. So let's, let's introduce our guests and so – we know who we're talking to and, and perhaps why. So um, Christy, we'll start with you. Christy's an Associate Professor with the Centre for Social Research in Health at UNSW where um, Christy's work focuses on social aspects of health, gender and sexuality. So great to have you here. And we're going to talk about a project that you have done with Myra and others, but to introduce Myra, Myra is Associate Professor at the ARC Centre of Excellence in Population Ageing Research at Sydney Uni. But prior to that, um, she moved there this year. Um, prior to that, she was at the Social Policy Research Centre with us at UNSW. And I guess that's where the genesis of the projects that we're talking about today all came from. So hello, Myra, and welcome. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> so do you, do you want to tell us a bit about this project? Mm. We're, we're using a shorthand about the families project, but yeah. but um, where did this idea come from? What are the gaps you wanted to address? What is it? Yeah, so um, it is called, we do call it the families project and um, I guess the, the term that we've been using slightly, slightly more broader uh, term is my health, our family. We came up with that as a, a way to explain uh, what we're interested in this, in this study, um, which is... Um, the impact and the experience of bloodborne viruses um, in and on family relationships. And uh, so the, the full term for the study was critical perspectives on zero discordance in family life. And I guess that central idea of zero discordance is something that we can come back to and explore a bit um, in our conversation today. But yeah, it's been a few years since the, the idea mm. first came about and we're right at the end of the project now. So we've got We've, we've done so much and um, it's been really a very exciting collaboration that we're, we're keen to talk to you about. Mm. Okay. So it, was, it was funded by the um, ARC, Australian Research Council, as a discovery project. That's right, mm. isn't it? Like that's right. Time ago now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. It was an ARC discovery project. We were very lucky to, to get one um, to fund this. Um, really, the first time that we brought together um, expertise from the Centre for Social Research and Health on social aspects of bloodborne viruses, the impacts and lived experience, and then um, expertise from Social Policy Research Centre on families um, and care relationships in particular. Um, and I guess just one thing I'll say about when we're talking about bloodborne viruses uh, in this study, one of the things which I guess um, set us apart from a lot of research in this area is that we looked across 
three different viruses, HIV, Mm -hmm. hepatitis B, hepatitis C, um, because we're actually quite, we were really deliberately keen to look at whether there were um, shared dimensions of the experience among families of diagnosis, disclosure, responses, support, um, and and impacts on on caring and family relationships across those different, very different viruses. Um, And and we realised that was going to be a bit of a, a um, what's what's the word? A bit of a, a bit of an awkward thing to do because they are very very different, and the families affected are often different. Although of course there are also families affected by co-infection, um, but we thought it was a worthwhile um, thing to try. And I think what we can talk about today is um, some of the things that we really were able to do by taking that approach, but also some of the things which, um, as expected, were quite um, tricky uh, to try to look across those areas. Yeah. And the focus on family is really interesting. And Myra, this is part of your area of expertise, um, families. And and what did family mean here? How are you approaching that notion? Yeah, so we decided from the outset to take a really open approach to family. So we we said in the study materials that we we were using the term broadly to include immediate and extended families but also families of choice or affinities. And participants were given the opportunity to tell us who counted as family in their lives. Um, when we when we commenced the interview with the participants, we asked them to work with us on a mapping exercise um, to map who their family was. And this was a really nice technique to help us um, work with the participants to kind of co-construct their family in the context of Um, bloodborne virus uh, rather than have kind of a rather static representation of family Um, and we found that um, they they did use kind of concepts of closeness and distance to map their family geographies in quite interesting ways and and that these kind of geographies of care if you like um, changed over time as they kind of negotiated and renegotiated family relationships uh, in the context of changing circumstances of living with serodiscordance. Mm-hmm. So, Myra, you know, um, just sort of while you're talking a bit about sort of some of the fundamentals of the project, you know, um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how you approached uh, doing the project, you know, like methods used, that sort of thing? What did you yeah. actually do? Yeah. Sure. So we started off with two critical literature reviews. Um, one of them was about the concept of serodiscordance um, or mixed infection status. And we really, we did a review of the literature on families affected by bloodborne viruses to really demonstrate the limited nature of the way that the term serodiscordance had been used in the existing literature um, to, to understand tra- transmission risk between couples. Um, and, and really we wanted to try and um, explore its potential to open up new ways of understanding the relationality of bloodborne viruses. The second review of the literature was on the role of carers in supporting people with HIV in uh, Western countries in the contemporary era of antiretroviral treatments and carers' support needs. And um, we found that carers of, of people living with HIV have similar needs to other groups of carers, but they're currently mostly invisible in, in support services. Um so, so once we'd sort of set those foundations, I guess, we, um, we, we went into it, the qualitative phase of our study. We conducted um, 61 
in-depth um, semi-structured interviews wow. with people living with one or more of the, the bi- viruses, yeah, yeah. Um, and, their, and their family members. So sometimes we spoke with a, a participant living with a bloodborne virus or one or more bloodborne viruses and, and asked them to tell us who was important in their family life and mm-hmm. then um, we, they sought permission of their family members to pass on contact details and we spoke with their family members as well. In other circumstances, the family members contacted us directly. Um, so we were able to, to get quite a rich picture of, um, of the kind of family life of bloodborne viruses across both people living with a virus and their family members. Um, and then the final stage was we, we conducted interviews with 20 stakeholders or key professionals with expertise in the fields of infectious disease and, and family wellbeing about the involvement in family in 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 bloodborne viruses and and obviously to just to say in case listeners are worried that there was no crossover of information between interviews with people living with bloodborne virus and their family members that the information in each interview would have been confidential and not shared with any other family member or so on so yes of course and we were you know we were very careful to make that clear to the participants in the study yeah and we also, just to add to that, we also didn't link the data in our analyses, so we weren't interested mm-hmm. in kind of analysing or interrogating the accounts of, of linked family members deliberately. They became their own sources of data to, to kind of contribute to the overall picture of the stories of um, affected families. Mm. And can you just say a bit more about the stakeholders? You know, it's, it's an interesting thing. We, we often... Uh, go to stakeholders. What what were they giving you here? What were you looking for from from them? And um, just to reiterate, reiterate, I guess what types of people were in that group? Um, yeah, I'll, I can um, I'll take that one. So I think um, one of the things that I didn't sort of say about the the rationale for the study was that I, I guess we, what what we were he- hearing in the bloodborne virus sector more and more was that there was this sort of move towards ideas like elimination, like um, self-management, um, like um, very much the sort of discourse of independence that we associate now with a lot of the the, um, the clinical and social support approaches to thinking about bloodborne viruses in our community. And um, while this recognition and thankfully growing recognition that the impacts of social stigma remain profound mm-hmm. um they also tended to be and i think this is still a bit of a, a problem in in these sectors a sort of an assumption that with successes in biomedical treatments and advances um comes a sort of automatic impact on um, the quality of social relationships around um, bloodborne viruses so as though, you know, with successful um, uh, a, a treat, effective treatment for HIV with successful, the, the potential to, to cure hepatitis um, C, uh, C, and I'll, I will talk about hep B as a separate um, case there, as though they will automatically reduce stigma, automatically mean that families will be more accepting, automatically kind of, you know, just sort of make that happen. And I guess we had some questions about that and really what families themselves might think about what this era um, meant in their lives. You know, was that the, was that the experience for them? Um, and uh, so uh, alongside that, I think what we really wanted to know was um the stakeholders who really are involved in, um, who were shaped by in their work, that that kind of contemporary discourse of success in in the biomedical response to bloodborne viruses, 
how they're making sense of and supporting um, the role of families in the um, prevention and, and, and care of um, and, and treatment um, op options in these areas. Um, and so we really wanted to understand their perspectives at the front line. So we, you know, we interviewed clinicians involved in counselling or in other aspects of um of support for people affected by blood and viruses, as well as people in policy and advocacy. Uh, and, and really we wanted people who had some understanding of both of those areas, uh, if possible, you know, the sort of mm. blood and virus response, but also the, the role that families do play, even if mostly they see people directly affected, they also have a sense of the family life that sits outside and around the people that they work with. Um, and so we really got some fascinating perspectives from them as professionals trying to work through this moment in time where they're, they're, they're selling a story, I suppose, to the people that they're supporting around success and also supporting people in dealing with what remains really difficult conversations with the people in their lives with their uh, and impacts on their intimate relationships um, their sense of self and their contribution and and and, and um, you know how their life may or may not have changed by that diagnosis so you know they uh, all of them were passionate about sharing what they thought was happening at this point around this relationship between blood viruses and families. And all of them felt like more, um, there was much benefit that could be achieved through, um, through, ha through having more direct conversations and also potentially, um, uh, forms of health promotion, forms of, um, of, of care and support that actively engaged, uh, families as, um, as that relational network of support around people who are directly affected. It's really interesting, that stuff, Chrissy, because um, it, you just were reminding me of, Carla, the work that you and I worked on around hepatitis C treatment and, you know, what else people might be wanting, you know, outcomes-wise yeah. from their treatment. Yeah. And this issue of like, oh, you know, I, I hope that it's going to change the way my family see me was absolutely, you know, part of yeah. that discussion and that narrative so it's really great to see some research that's sort of delving into that a bit more I think it's a really fascinating area um nice one yeah I, and look I, I think um uh Myra I, I think you touched on this but I just wanted to also say we did make a decision early on that did influence the way that we're looking at families and the sorts of data that we're collected around families because we 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 this is a very very big topic um we're also trying to look across kind of viruses which is also big and one of the things we thought we would do is really explicitly say we wanted to talk to people whose families were actively involved in their lives and who in, were involved and aware in, of um their health decisions and practices and that meant that we didn't hear from people who had um, whose, whose relationships with their families had ended, um, or were very, very difficult and not, 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 not productive in their lives. Uh, we, but of course, that doesn't mean all the stories we heard were <laughs> ha happy and easy. Um, but they were connected, and so what we really wanted to find out was what do those connections involve um, at this point in history, uh, or in this point in the kind of history of these viruses in in, in Australia, um, and uh, you know what can we learn from the way those those relationships are done today for strengthening our our future responses. 
And so what, you know, we've, we've started to touch on some of the um, results already. What kind of ideas did you use to look at the data? Because, you know, as social researchers, we're, we're, we're not journalists. We're not here to report everything that comes up in a data set. We, we need to take some or we usually take a conceptual approach. So there are m- many ways to get into this data. What were you interested in, in um, operationalising as ideas to get into the big data set you had in front of you? I'll just say start, but I'm going to throw to Myra in a second. I just wanted to say, I think the thing that's fascinating and wonderful about this project is we had this collection of incredibly creative thinkers that came together. And rather than it being a project where there was has been kind of one um, you know, I'm the lead CI, but I uh, I have absolutely benefited from the the ideas being driven across the team and very much recognising the distinctive areas of expertise and excitement generated by individuals. And it's a wonderfully collaborative, supportive team so that people would kind of jump on board. But what we've got, I think, is, and it's still emerging, so we've still got lots of papers, you know, coming up ahead, but um, a sense of a collection of related but very different ways of engaging with this data set um, so I think that's just something to say. It's not a kind of neat suite of pieces that all kind of sit in a row. They actually have very much their own life and identity and reveal, I think, the interests of the person who's led them. But I might throw it to, to Myra just to, to say maybe we could talk about the the risk paper as a nice link from what we've talked about in terms of our interest in in this kind of the risk framing uh, that, that, that dominates serial discordance research. Thanks, Christy. And if I could just reiterate what you have said, it's, it's actually been such a lovely opportunity to, um, to draw on the kind of, um, the concepts that others in the team have used, um, as new windows into what I'm familiar with. Um, I'm a sociologist, um, who has focused mostly on, um, on theories of, of care and the family. Um, and and through this project, working with um, colleagues like Christy and others in our team, um, it's just it's just provided such insights into um, into what I was familiar with and, and new ways of understanding um, the family. Um, so one of those particular approaches um, in in one of the papers we published was on the relational dynamics of risk, and we we argued that risk is. In the context of the of the participant interviews, risk is assessed and 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 sort of navigated through relational histories, through through concepts of love and of loyalty, mm-hmm. um, and and other kind of cultural and emotional meaning systems that really helped the families make sense of the virus and manage its impacts on their on their relationships and on their everyday lives and practices. And, and we found of, uh, risks where they talking about Myra is it is it transmission risks or is it risks to the person living with that they're going to develop um, greater health problems in the future what what was this notion of risk that yeah I mean at here? It, well it was multifaceted so part of it was kind of transmission risk um, and, and a sort of quite medical concept of risk but there there were also bigger concepts of kind of social risk around um, having a stigma, stigmatized bloodborne uh-huh. virus in the family, you know, disrupting, um, you know, normative conceptions of, of family and the family's kind of, um, 
um, presentation to the to the world, you know, and um, and it was very interesting because we found that there were there were diff- families families coped with that risk in different ways, and that and that had implications for their for their family relationships. So, in some circumstances, the kind of the kind of doing of risk in families could could actually be constitutive of difference. So it would sort of unsettle family connections. Um, and this often deepened what were existing fault lines before, before a diagnosis. Um, but we found more commonly there was this kind of undoing of risk where families developed strategies for, for kind of pulling apart risk and recreating it as an opportunity for um, strengthening a family bond and, mm-hmm. and rejecting difference and kind of thinking of risk instead as a sort of um, as an external threat to the family uh, rather than something that could um, could create division within the family. Yeah, interesting. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And what yeah. else? What else can mm. we direct our readers to go and have a big <laughs> read of all these great yes, data, but, all these great findings? We have a wonderful paper led by Asha Person, which is open access, which we mm. always love being able to do. So I think mm. if you could put the link for that in the um, yeah. Oh, yeah. in the show notes, no that'd worries. be great. Um, and really, Asha engaged here. She drew on her own, I guess, history in um, understanding of um, phenomenology in particular, and some and some ideas from from that area, um, particularly the concept of intercorporeality uh, and embodiment. Just say that again. <laughs> Intercorporeality. So, intercorporeality. so the corporeal of embodiment of the body and then intercorporeality meaning the ways in which our embodiment becomes entangled through social relationships or relations uh-huh. social and I guess uh, what she was trying to do and I think did very successfully it's a beautiful paper um, in, 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 and this is sort of became, our, I guess, a bit of a, a, a flagship type from the study that, that the rest of us are all trying to get it as, as well. <laughs> um, was she really, she was trying deliberately to move away from uh, virological and risk framing of the of bloodborne virus um, concepts um, to, to think about the relational worlds that infuse these viruses with meaning and shape the lives of all of those affected, um, and uh, so uh, she so looking specific, looking deliberately at the embodiment of HIV and hepatitis C, and she focused on those two um, in in this paper as intensely relational. So. Um, uh, it's an alternative ontology is what she would say and it's thinking about um, these viruses as uh, extending beyond any one body um, and being experienced and lived through webs of affective relations. So that's the, 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 the interconnections between the emotional um, and the physical uh, and also recognising that um, because families are, uh, you know, and uh, she said here, an inescapable constituent of most people's lives, whether cherished or troubled, present or absent, they are deeply enmeshed in the shaping of embodied biographies. Nice. You know, we, we it's pretty, pretty difficult for any of us to get outside of that, um, uh, you know, even, even as we change through the life course. Um, and so I think... Uh, so she's, she, she works through a number of different elements of what she's considering to be intercorporeal aspects of 
um, the accounts that were given, including things like bodily empathy, so particular elements where um, uh, 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 people's relation relation to each other becomes shaped through their understanding of what the impact of, of the diagnosis means um, on loved ones. Um, so, yes, I would definitely encourage people to to look at that at pa- that paper as a way into the study um, and please share it as an open access paper. It's widely available. Mm, great. Nice one. Wow. So um, to either of you, um, whoever chooses to tackle this, take this on. But um, so we've sort of talked a little bit about some of uh, what's been done. And I take the point that you still have, you know, papers to come and, and things are still emerging. But in terms of what's uh, been published, you know, how are, the, how are the results being received? What's what sort of response are you having to to the work you've done? Uh, yeah, so um, we are going to be releasing our project report uh, in the at the beginning of uh, December. So um, I, we again um, make that widely available, and so hopefully we'll reach some broader audiences. So far, we have really been pleased with how um, people have responded. Um, our participants themselves. It's always wonderful to have this experience, but so many people said they really hadn't had the opportunity to talk about their own lives in the way that our questions um, ask them to reflect. So mm-hmm. really thinking about their experience in relation to, to to the idea of families. And also, I guess, for most of the family members, um, their experience typically is that they are on the side. Um, of things. So, you know, they might be attending some appointments if they're invited or they might, you know, um, uh, uh, have have be, be involved in particular conversations and decisions about treatment and so on. But um, often, um, you know, their experiences are also come with a set of constraints around who they can talk to about about their own experiences, their own fears, their own um, joys and learnings. Uh, so I guess this became um, we were really pleased that, that people were so willing to share and and, and enjoy that process is what they've told us. Um, we have a, an incredibly committed, very long standing relationship with our advisory committee um, uh, that they have been remarkable a really wonderful group of organizations um, who have um, been been part of and supported this project from the beginning particularly we've been, you know we focused on New South Wales health New South Wales so we have to um, put credit there for hepatitis New South Wales positive life New South Wales pos het multicultural HIV and, um, hepatitis service uh, the um, pediatric HIV unit at the Sydney Kids Hospital um, because we did have young people in the study as well. Um, we are uh, down to, I think, um, uh, our youngest was 15 um, uh, and our oldest was in the 80s. So we had a, a real range of people. Um, and, yes, look, we're really looking forward to seeing responses. We've had um, very positive um, feedback to the papers that we've published so far, including the paper that um, Myra mentioned. Um, we had a mapping exercise at the beginning of interviews where we asked people to uh, map out their family relationships and relationships of closeness and distance to those people. And um, our colleague Karen Drysdale wrote a paper specifically on um 
I guess that device within the interview, what it made possible, what it constrained, what it, what it, mm-hmm. um, uh, that, 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 what she considered, uh, what she called spatializing intimacy in the process of the interview. And that paper has been, um, really broadly shared and a number of people have commented it's going to be incredibly useful in their own research. So that's wonderful to hear. I think we've got, I think, um, uh, we'll see, uh, lots of, uh, more f- pieces of feedback around the papers coming, um, coming up in the future. Right, and we'll put the link to that as well. So we, we mentioned that this is um, a, a combination of researchers coming together from um, social research and health and social policy. How did that, why this team to work together and how did that produce um, new productive ideas or ways of working? What Tell us about that. Yeah, look, it's it's been incredibly fruitful Carla, it's, um, I mean, as we mentioned earlier, it's been, it's meant we've been able to bring together the concepts and frameworks from both fields, um, health and social policy and, and, and family and care literature, um, to understand the kind of intersections between them. Um, so for example, um, an understanding of different virus groups and their contemporary treatment contexts has provided you know, really important insights into the complex and changing ways that families living with bloodborne viruses navigate social relationships, social services, and even social institutions like schools, mm-hmm. for example. Um, we're currently developing a paper on providing care in contexts of stigma uh, that really, you know, brings together frameworks from the two, the two approaches in our, in our research team to examine how stigma can can be constitutive of care practices and constitutive of the relational dynamics in families experiencing chronic illness. So, for example, you know, among our participants, keeping the diagnosis a secret um, could mm. become an important part of the way some family members enacted their care responsibilities. So we had one mother who spoke of the way that she supported her daughter with treatment adherence. And as part of this, she put different labels on her daughter's medicine. So if she was staying somewhere overnight, um, she could take her medicine without feeling, you know, fearful of, of disclosing her viral status. Um, so, so it's so just like peeled the label off the, the container or something and put another label on to. Yes. Or she, or that's right. Or, yes, that's right. right. Or she would, yeah, yeah, she would take the medicine out and put it in a different container so that it wasn't mm. identifiable. So, so this mm. kind of really interesting, um, way of using the kind of the content, co- uh, the concept of stigma and the way it's been theorized in, um, work on, um, bloodborne viruses and really, um, you know, using it to, to create new insights in the care literature that are, you know, that are not there yet has been incredibly um, useful. So, so we're, we're really bringing together things in this way um, because of the, you know, the different expertise of members of our team. And, I mean, I think we've, we're, we're looking to explore many, many other ways of bringing together our expertise. But I'd also just say that I, I think the bringing together of these two fields has really open possibilities for different types of impact as well. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that's been quite interesting is that the, um, the kind of um, health policy sphere and the, and the sort of social policy and, and care policy and advocacy sphere have been operating quite separately. Um, and, 
And so, you know, the, the coming together of those two spheres on this project, I think, will really enable us to um, magnify our, our impact on, on services in particular That's that can support these groups. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So we're, we're kind of getting to towards the end and, and um, you know, this is a question we like to ask lots of people. What, what was surprising for mm. you? You know, we often go into projects knowing what we want to do or having mm. some ideas, but we're always open to um, new things, surprises, uh, going down new alleys that we hadn't considered mm. before. What was your surprise about families and BBVs? Um, yeah, look, I, I think the concept and the way that it was used in um, Ash's paper on intercorporeality really um, extended my thinking about what, you know, how, how, how can we usefully um, bring the social into this understanding of what bloodborne viruses mean and how, they, how, they, how they're lived in everyday life. Um, and I guess just linked to that is I, I mentioned that we didn't include the hepatitis B um, data in that paper um, and there have been other papers where we've had to think carefully about that as well. And that's partly because the way that hepatitis B is understood, um, the way that um, I guess the community response and understanding to hepatitis B figures around that really um, does have such um, significant differences that it 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 felt um, like it would be too forced to try to bring the same um, themes to bear on 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 the on those accounts. That doesn't mean that applies in all of the forms of analysis that we're doing because there were shared elements across many of the um, of the other other papers that we're looking at. But there really were uh, a number of differences there that I think we um, we anticipated would be there, but it was. Um, it was just much clearer. The other um, issue is that we did have a much smaller number of people with hepatitis B or affected in than c- compared to HIV and hepatitis um, C in the study. Uh-huh. So really doing more de- dedicated work around this topic in hep B would be fantastic mm-hmm. as, a, as a next step. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hep B is the, the forgotten cousin of the BBV family. <laughs> <laughs> and, Myra, how about for you? What, what was um, something that took you by surprise in, these, in this project? Yeah, um, I guess, I guess um, one, of the, one of the surprises for me um, was that um, was some of the sensitivities around, um, around naming um, support for people living with bloodborne viruses as care. And I, I, I was aware that there was some resistance to exploring notions of care and caring um, uh, in, in the HIV sector. So, for example, I presented a paper on our, um, our scoping review of, uh, of the needs of carers of people living with HIV at, um, at a big HIV conference. And I just, you know, I just sensed a feeling of um, tension uh, in response to the, um, the paper, which I, I thought about a lot afterwards. I mean, I think part of, part of it was that I, you know, am a, was a newcomer, um, and coming from a different sort of a different approach from, from some others at the conference. But I also, you know, felt that perhaps the kind of discourse of independence and wellness, um, underpinning the new HIV treatment era, um, you know, uh, didn't necessarily sit neatly alongside some of the traditional concepts of care and caring um, and that, you know, uh, 
it prompted us to think differently about how how to talk about care and support in a way that could be received um, across different mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. communities of 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 support. Interesting. Oh, that's a that's a very yeah, yeah. very interesting yeah. point, yeah. and uh, I think that echoes with with work we've done elsewhere, where mm-hmm. you challenging the audience yeah. with with work and. Um, you know, I, was, I think we were reflecting on another episode about the issues of trust and health workers and how that can be very challenging to receive. So there yes. is some um, ways in which we need to rethink the how to put those challenging ideas forward to audiences yeah. who are coming from different positions. And, yeah. I'll just also add to that. I think that there's um, this also speaks to again this sort of point in history where we're at with um, our response to bloodborne viruses in Australia, which is that resources are restrict are, are reducing, um, competition is increasing for those resources, and if we're talking about relational networks affected by bloodborne viruses, there could be a sense that that is a threat to the existing programs of support for people who are themselves living with um, bloodborne viruses. We absolutely um, uh, would be committed to that not being the, the interpretation of what we're looking at. Um, mm. But if you're if you're asking questions around the needs of those who support people who are living. I can understand why um, the, 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 that could be discomforting um, or, you know, or, or thought about. So what we, what the trick for us then is to think, well, we, we are moving into an era of um, uh, a, a more diffuse um, set of relationships to this central um, problem. We have a range of strategies for um reducing transmission risk for um, for achieving good health for the individual and also perhaps it's an opportunity to be paying attention to the quality of the social relationships of those affected as what we believe to be an essential part of living well and responding well to an ongoing challenge to our health. Uh, so we hope that I I love that Myra is, um, you know, has has brought that up today because I think that sensitivity to the points of resistance are really important for us to think through, um, and I think also really do tap into one of the areas, one of the reasons probably why this topic area hasn't been explored as <laughs> deeply as we might have imagined mm-hmm. in the past year. Just one quick thing to add there as well: it, the the reverse is also. Um, uh, a, a true, which is that thinking about what bloodborne viruses might mean for the families and carers sector also comes with its own challenges in terms of the framing of relevance yeah. and need. So, um, you know, what one of the things that's been interesting to see is that um, there's currently um, an appetite for recognition that um, LGBTQ um populations as a whole have not been particularly well recognised in either the family or the carers sectors, whether that's to do with um, uh, violence prevention within families or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, quality of, um, you know, positive relationship type work, whether that's to do with parenting um, programs or a whole range of things, but also in relation to carer needs. So, um, you know, LGBTQ um, identified um, individuals formed a part of our study, but they certainly were not the whole. 
Yeah. And so, it, you know, while that framing could was a useful opportunity for us to um, promote elements of our findings and our data, uh, that what what happens to the rest, I suppose, of the people that we're, we're talking about here? Does that yeah. fall back really to the bloodborne virus sector again? So where are those points where we can actually try to work across these different um, frameworks um, so that we're not then missing out a whole range of, of people's experiences because they don't fit what's considered to be the most important framework or new today? Mm. Nice. Well, well, thank you both yeah. for such a great journey over this fascinating mm-hmm. and complex and um, multi-pronged project. Yeah. We'll put a heap of um, links up on the show mm-hmm. page yep. and people can dive into this great area of families and BBVs. Yeah. Fantastic. It was really interesting. I can't, I'm really looking forward to reading some of the, the work myself actually, so... Thank you for the opportunity to talk about the project today. Yeah, Yeah, well, congratulations to all the gang involved. It's uh, wonderful to see. Well, it's wonderful to see Blood Bomb Virus getting a a Guernsey from the ARC and uh, terrific to see you all um, capitalise on it so much and produce such wonderful material. Well done, you guys. All right. Well, Well, We'll sign off, but yeah. we'll ask you, um, you, our guests, not to leave the studio just yet whilst we process it. So thank you. See okay, you. Next. See you next time. Thanks Bye. a lot. For more information about this podcast, our guests, and upcoming episodes, head to http://csrh.arts.unsw.edu.au.